Everybody, what's up, you guys? Mile Higher Podcast here, live for episode number twenty. Twenty, man, we did it. We made it to twenty. We made it. We made it to twenty episodes. We made it. Yes, <laughs> and I'm so excited. Here's to the next eighty we're gonna do. Yes, and then we're stopping at hundred. Yes, hundred and done. No. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Never let's gonna like, stop. Let's go for the moon, man. A thousand. Let's be the longest running podcast in podcast Ever. history. That's really going to be pretty hard. hard. Joe Rogan's at over yeah. a thousand episodes already. Damn. Yeah, he's the Good king for, for sure. But what's up, guys? Welcome back to yes. the podcast. We are very excited today because we are kind of moving in a different direction as far as topics go today. Yeah. We're going to... Changing gears a little bit. Changing out of conspiracy mode and yeah. putting ourselves into true crime mode. Yes, for which, a mind-blowing case that's going to just rock your world. Today oh if yeah, you haven't heard about this. Oh yeah, super super interesting. We are going to be discussing the pizza bomber mystery case, wacky whatever you want to call it. It is it is wacky a bizarre factory, bizarre case, and it really is. It's been made popular again because of a new uh, Netflix documentary that hit uh, a few weeks ago, or maybe it was a little longer than that, but called evil genius and yes. we just finished it what the other day yeah and people actually refer to this case as the P the pizza bomber case so you may have actually heard of that and not evil right. genius but yeah that's what it's called um but it's referring to the pizza bo pizza bombing case which is super weird like i had never heard about this i believe this happened in 2003 right yeah, it was somewhere around there. Somewhere yeah. in early 2000s. And it's just really, really bizarre that, like, no, I feel like so many people didn't know about this. And if this happened today, like, I feel like it would have been a major, major news story. But. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, knows? everything is a major, major news story. Like, look at Roseanne. Like, one tweet. And, but it's like, what they want. Like, yeah. that became a huge news story. I think Roseanne probably got more coverage than this, to yeah, be honest. It's I never heard of this. And I'm really into crime. So for me not to have heard of it, it's really weird. So yeah, that's the uh, that's the case we're going to be talking about primarily today. But we have two others we want to share with you uh, quickly before the main one. But before we do that, as always, we just want to thank our patrons, especially our stellar patrons: Jocelyn B, Elizabeth B, Rebecca H, Brittany M, Kaylin M, Selena M. Thank you guys so much, and thank you just really to all of you guys listening and watching. We really appreciate it. We love um, you all so much. We do. We love you all so much. Thank you for being a Malahar homie with us. And this week's Patreon question comes from Rachel J. And she says, hey, Josh and Kendall, just wondering what your opinion is on the Malaysian government shutting down the search investigation into flight MH370. Keep up the great work on the podcast, guys. It's bullshit, Rachel. Oh, God. I feel so fucking bad for the families of, I do too. of the victims or, you know, the people that I guess are presumed dead at this point. I mean, yeah, on that flight, because. Uh, that, yeah, I mean, they ju they're ending it, I think, this week after years and millions and millions of dollars. And I think the search uh, team was called Infinity. Um, they were offered like $70 million if they found the wreckage or the black boxes even. But they have found nothing, absolutely nothing. So I'm so confused, though. When we did the podcast, remember, we were talking about how they did say they'd recovered a few pieces that they've. I can't remember if they said they thought confirmed. it was, but they said it they was they said they, from that. They said they traced it back, but who knows, really? Well, I mean, you think they'd be, like, displaying that information on all these new articles. Like, all these new articles are like, the search is ending without any any anything. Kind of seems like they just have Something realized, sketchy's up. I mean, oh, I, yeah. I think something really sketchy's happened with this. I, I have a heart... 
I have a hard time believing that this plane literally disappeared yeah. from existence <laughs> by accident. That doesn't happen. Mm-mm. You will f- you find this after a while. You even I mean, yeah, there's accidents in the past that go, you know, fly off the radar for a long yeah. time, but it's like I don't know. I just have a very hard time believing that this was just by accident or if it was, you know, just like suicide or something along that line. Well, it's really interesting about the whole MH370 and the current news media is that every country is reporting something different. Like there are so many different sources different. Isn't it like bizarre? Yeah, no. I mean, there's so many hands in the pot at this point. Yeah, that like that nobody really knows exactly what's been found. You know, it just seems like, I mean, obviously there's a main search team, which is this infinity team, but it seems like it's been very scattered. I mean, as we know, it's been scattered from the beginning. So I I think it's a shame and hopefully somebody else will, I mean, somebody else will pick this up. Don't get me wrong. Somebody's going to be doing this, whether it's a large entity or it's like an individual, people are going to want to trace this and try to figure out. Where, well, where it went. people already have been and no one has found it. There's plenty of independent people doing it and no one has found anything. And there was an article I saw recently that was real. I can't remember what news outlet it was, but they were really pushing that it was the pilot and it was a pilot suicide. And and it's kind of crazy to think about because if it wasn't, it's really sad that this pilot who possibly could have, I mean, he could have done it. Yeah, but he also could have been an amazing he was described as an amazing person by his friends and community and he loved what he did could you imagine like dying with people thinking that you killed everyone on oh, that I plane know. if you oh, were the pilot who loved that that's so much? such a horrible i mean especially if you aren't you know guilty of that and right and i just think there's not enough evidence to just start saying oh yeah it was pretty much him that's so irresponsible and unfair to his family and unfair to him and maybe it was him, but there's not enough evidence. So to just blame it on him and brush everything aside and move on is sick. It me. is. It really is. And I mean, I'm, I, the more research I've done on this, the more I'm, I'm believing in the conspiracy theory that MH370 ended up being MH, MH17, which was the oh, one that got shot down and destroyed. That. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the planes, the planes were actually switched. Like they were just kind of like oh Titanic type God. scenario. And Dude. the plane was actually, MH370 was the plane that was destroyed, which we now know were destroyed by uh, missiles that traced back to the Russians. Right. And yeah, MH17 yeah. was destroyed by them. Yep. Wow. I actually did not even know that there was a conspiracy that they so, were switched. Wow. So maybe we need to do a whole podcast on that because we're already <laughs> seven minutes into this question here. <laughs> we got to get going. Super I've got interesting. A lot to thank talk you for today. that question, Rachel. Yes. Thank you, you guys Rachel. always get the best questions. You really do. And if you want to leave a question, you know how to find it if you're a patron. Okay, so today we're going to start out talking about something that's extremely serious and very, very sad. And you you guys know how important the cause of human trafficking is to me and how upset it makes me. And I'm sure so many of you out there feel the same way. And that's why you, you know, watch this type of content and you care about this type of stuff. And this is extremely disturbing because I don't think the average person would ever think this could ever happen or would ever happen. But it did. Oh, and this is just like scratching the surface of what's really right. happening below the surface. But it's, the first, but yeah. it's like one of the, um, not first, but it's a big lately, the biggest lately story that has come out about human trafficking and the reality of it. That's kind of getting people's attentions like, oh, that can happen? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. dude. It's happening to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. 
So what ended up happening was the um, United States government has lost, ladies and gentlemen, lost fifteen hundred kids. Wow. Fifteen hundred kids. I mean, you don't just lose fifteen hundred kids. Mm-mm. You know, there's there's something there's some sort of transaction involved here for fifteen hundred kids. Because apparently they placed thousands of uh, unaccompanied immigrant children in homes of sponsors, but last year it couldn't account for nearly 1,500 of them. And apparently during the last three months of 2017, the Office of Refugee Resettlement lost track of nearly uh, the 1,500 immigrant children that it had placed in the homes of sponsors. So between October and December 2017, the uh, Office of Refugee Resettlement reached out to 7,635 unaccompanied children to check on them after placing them in their new homes. But the ORR was unable to determine with certainty the whereabouts of roughly 1,500 children. Um, One of the uh, members of this organization testified, and an additional 28 had run away. That's more than 19% of the children that were placed by the ORR. But uh, this person that works for uh, this uh, organization said the Department of Health and Human Services is not responsible for lost children. Oh, my God. And after these unaccompanied minors arrive in the United States, often to reunite with family members or to flee violence or poverty. So these are kids just trying to get across the border because they've got family here in the U.S. or they're just trying to get out of their situation and they're unaccompanied by adults. So they're they're all minors. And they're typically transferred from border control or border patrol or customs officers into the custody of HHS, uh, which often reunites the minors with the relative or, or another sponsor. So it sounds like the the role of this organization is to take these children that come across the border illegally and then place them with what they call sponsors, mm-hmm. families, until they can basically figure out what to do with them or but figure now, out if they're here legally, if there's somebody here that... um you know, they can be with or stay with. Yeah. But um, the thing is, though, it, recently, I'm not sure if it's in our notes, but PBS did confirm that some of these drones have been released to human trafficking, human traffickers by the U.S. government. Literally given wow. to them. Yeah, and PBS. I, I saw I another. PBS.org right here. No, I saw a Vice article that was talking about the conditions that these kids are kept in. They're literally kept in, uh, like, fenced areas like dogs like they keep them in cages is what i'm trying to say they keep them in cages and they're there for who knows how long and i mean i i think the problem is probably it's probably a huge problem there's no there's either no you know pathway or path for them to either you know go on and and live somewhere in the u.s or to be deported it's, I mean, it seems like it's an, a real issue here, but the fact that we're finding out that the U.S. government is actually, instead of just deporting them or doing anything else with these children, these innocent children, they're giving them to human traffic traffickers. Yeah, and I mean, there's not like tons of evidence. There's like little things and like leaks and stuff in some cases, but like I'm telling you, dude, the majority I'm telling you, from what I know about human trafficking and the the role the government plays in it, I wouldn't be surprised if most of those kids ended up in human trafficking because of the government. And their life is over. Like, it's so hard to get out of human trafficking, dude. It is so horrible and vile and everywhere. It is all over the whole entire planet. So I'm I'm looking at 
the Federation for American Immigration Reform, and they're saying that it is estimated that 17,000 to 19,000 foreign nationals are trafficked uh, trafficked into the United States each year. Trafficked into the United States each year. Yep. And and it doesn't always necessarily mean like sex trafficking. Like sometimes they're exploited in other yeah. ways. So like mm-hmm. basically like human slaves. Human trafficking, though, it all but falls yeah, under human it trafficking. It all falls under human trafficking. Labor exploitation. Like they just like make them work in a sweatshop for no money or yeah. you know little little to nothing and keep them. You know, it's it's really horrible to know that this is actually going on. And these poor parents have no answers of what happened to their kids. A lot of them didn't have a say in whether or not. They were separated from them. It's just really sad. And basically the organization that's supposed to keep track of these kids says they have no way to keep track of them and they have no way to account for. That's that's an unacceptable job. It's not part of their job to keep track of the missing children, especially or like think about the children that get released to sponsors and then get murdered or get, you know, who knows? I mean, it's probably so many kids in this world. It's probably just so horrific to even know what what these poor kids go through but yeah it's a real issue and honestly i think we should do a podcast about human trafficking oh, we and, will. and sex trafficking because yeah, i will. think it's it's such a, it's such an issue that people don't don't want to talk about because it is so horrific and you know it's so emotional and unimaginable to think about and to understand that people actually go through this and actually yeah. you know end up as um a sex trafficking uh, victim it's it's crazy though it's absolutely crazy it really and is it's very upsetting disgusting to think that but make sure you guys involved. um you know stay informed on that that case don't let it just be another story that slips on you know we got to hold the we need to hold these cover- government entities yeah. accountable and that's the problem is that we don't have a way to do that because all they do every time you you bring something up to them is they throw their hands up and they're like i don't know yeah. what do you want us to do like and the, dude, our system, our government, again, it comes back to the government is antiquated as fuck and corrupt, they, as, and fuck. corrupt as fuck. And it's not, it's not for the people anymore. And we need, to, we need to redo it. We need to, we need to redo. Yeah. <laughs> Cause this, is, this ain't working Yeah, for anybody. But, um, yeah, but anyway. make sure you guys keep informed about that issue and what's going on with that whole case. Um, I'll, we'll leave some good resources in the description box to, continue to follow that but um moving into our second subtopic here yeah what you wanted to talk about this this case it was this is a recent case right? yes so we are actually filming this a little early or a little earlier in the week than we normally do because josh and i are going out of town this week so this happened last wednesday but at this let me just tell you guys the date because you're going to be confused um so this is about uh, a case involving Matt and Jenny Barker, right? Yes. And their one-year-old girl, This literally girl, happened Katera. last Wednesday. This girl passed away this last is another week. a hot car case? Yep, the 23rd. Which... Ugh. Um. So, for those of you who haven't seen my video on Ross Harris, Josh is very familiar with that case as well. Um, there's something called forgotten baby syndrome. And it's actually really common. It happens all the time. And going into these hot months is probably good we're talking about this as just a reminder of how fucking hot cars get in the summer you cannot leave anything a pet a child in a car obviously most of you guys know that however parents leave their car their kids in, in their car sometimes because they forget or they're exhausted because they're sleep deprived new parents or distracted they leave them in the car they realize it when it's too late and the kid 
dies in the car. So, which um, thirty-seven kids die in hot cars every year in the United States. Yeah, is, is the number, which is far too many. Way too many. That's fifty-four percent. That's completely avoidable. Yeah, fifty-four percent are forgotten in a vehicle. Twenty-seven percent are playing in an unattended vehicle. Eighteen percent are are intentionally left in a vehicle by. An oh adult. yeah, kids that um and get into a car and like can't get out of it i used to play hide and seek in my front yard oh, all the time yeah, i used to totally. hide in the car dude that's why you can't leave your car unlocked and yeah. let your kids play outside because they yeah. could get in there i did all lock the, time. the car then like not know how to like unlock it dude me oh, and my friends God. got in my parents cars dude i remember doing that too <laughs> yeah yeah no well really you like creepy. play you're like let's go get in the car yeah, but like, what if you like locked yourself in yeah and especially if the car's in the garage it's already hot in the garage in yeah. the summer and then you get in there and you're like oh yeah dude. sweating major and, oh god well, it's really brutal what happens, but so Ross Harris was a case I talked about a little while ago. It was this guy who left his son in the car. He was supposed to drop him off at daycare on the way to work, and he forgot and forgot Cooper was in the car. His son went into work, spent the whole day in work before he you know, went out to his car at the end of the day. And basically, there was enough evidence of him doing weird things like going out there in the middle of the day to his car and you know, he was sexting with a bunch of people talking about how he wished he had this like freedom and like a life away from yeah, marriage yeah. and blah, blah, blah. There was enough evidence showing that he purposely did it. So definitely looks that way. Yes. It de- and I think he did. <laughs> yeah. I don't like to think he did because I'm like, how the fuck could you do that? But I think there's enough evidence pointing that he did. So it's kind of like. You know, there's a lot of cases of people committing murders of crimes that they can make look accidental, obviously. So this is kind of like the perfect crime of the kid because it's like, oh, and then everyone feels bad for the parent. Like you, you forgot your kid. That's so sad. Like, so basically this girl, Katarina or Kat, is it Katara? She was only one years old. Beautiful little girl adopted by Matt and Jenny Barker. Now, I want to say this is so early on. We definitely can't suspect innocent until proven guilty absolutely and there's definitely not enough evidence so far of anything but i just want to put this on your radar in case you've always wanted to like follow a case from the beginning this might be a good one to follow so she was left in a car all day in blistering 90 89 degree heat and this was in nashville tennessee and her adoptive father matt barker left her in the car and took a ride-sharing service from to the airport for a business trip. So he left her at home in the driveway. In the car. Now here's the weird thing about it that makes this sketch as fuck. Yeah. He also had her sister with her in the car that day, dro- drove to daycare, dropped the sister off, but went home with Katara in the back of the car. What? Yeah. Was supposed to drop her off, too. And it's like, come on, that's bullshit. You know, at least the daycare worker would have reminded you by saying like, oh, well, where's your other kid? Oh, shit. She's in the car. And I don't see how you could get one out. And that is just so that's why everyone's freaking out. So he went to the airport, left the state. And his wife went to Jenny, went to go pick her up from daycare. And she wasn't there. She had never been dropped off. She called 911 around 5.42 p.m. and raced back to their home. Jenny arrived at home before the paramedics were pulling the girl out of her car and performing CPR on her. She obviously did not make it. She was in a car all day. Like, there's just, it's not possible. No. I mean, you die really quick. I think there's that viral video on the internet that 
there's like a, a they do it for like animals like this vet got in there and showed mm-hmm. how hot it gets and how quickly it gets mm-hmm. like extremely hot to the point where you get you die of heat exhaustion mm-hmm. and and like cracking it. a window doesn't do anything yeah literally nothing so so she was transported to vanderbilt children's hospital but she was uh, dead on arrival which i mean obviously yeah. if you're in the car that long you're not going to make it especially as a one-year-old yeah but apparently That's once her dad found out that um she died and that he fucking left her in the car he flew right back and apparently so far the parents are cooperating with law enforcement and as of right now, it doesn't look like they're going to be charged for this, yeah. which is interesting. As of now, I would keep an eye on this. I think I think the leaving, you know, dropping one child off and forgetting the other is beyond sketch. And there's so many questions I have about that that I don't think this is going away. Maybe they're not being charged right now, but. Well, well I, think I don't it's think the same her, kind of thing you know, with the other case we were just talking about, where yeah. at first, right. at first glance, it looks like an accidental thing. But then. As you, because like, well, they what arrested Ross is, Harris that day. Oh, they did. They did charged him that day. But I mean, they're gonna, police are going to put together the timeline. They're going to figure out exactly where he was, you know, and they're going to play it all out and see, you know, if it makes sense and the alibis are there, and you know, figure out if he really did just accidentally leave. I just don't understand how you fucking accidentally leave your kid in the car. How do you, I mean? Well, I don't I get mean, that. Like from a even if I'm tired as fuck though I don't I don't I just feel like I well, mean there's some people personally just, can't but it's literally a scientific thing where your your these parents are creating a false memory in their head of dropping their kids off like oh, it's an actual scientific thing it is real and it does ha- I mean people don't it's not like all 37 of these people are doing this on purpose every yeah year. yeah it's the work it ruins their lives it's it's horrible but it looks it's if you want to get rid of your kid. You know, making it look like an accident is what a lot of parents try to do. And this is like one of those crimes that you could do that in, you know? Yeah, yeah. And apparently, according to the National Weather Service, the temperatures in Nashville reached a high of 89 degrees, which means that the inside of the truck could have reached nearly 120 degrees, which is way too fucking hot for anything or anybody to Mm -hmm. be in the car for an extended period of time. I mean, that's that's extremely hot. And I mean, if you don't know... Even if it, you know, even if it's only 90 degrees outside, like your car gets easily 30 degrees hotter. Yeah. I mean, and if you have a black car or darker colored car, multiple, you know, multiply that by even more because it gets extremely hot. So it's just a, these, the, I feel like these cases are just always like a, they're a remind, it's a tragedy, but it's also like a wake up call to everybody out there. Anybody that has a pet or a child to just be careful, double check, take a double take. Every time you get out of the car, mm-hmm. just to make sure, because one fucking mistake and, you know, you could lose your, your, your child life. or your pet or yeah, your life even. It's so ruin your life. Sad, sad, uh, sad story, but yeah, hopefully really intense. Hopefully they figure out the truth. It just it. makes me sad thinking about like what she probably went through, like being one years old in that type of heat. Like I'm sure it was horrible and it just makes me sick thinking that. If 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 he did this on purpose, I mean, I hope he's fucking punished because that's horrible. I know. I just I don't know. I hate to say anything because I don't know if they did on purpose, and I'm sure if he didn't, it's like the worst thing in the world for him right now. But yeah, it's just yeah. like you got to question stuff like this. That's so weird. Totally. But anyway, time to get into the main topic for today. P 
pizza bomber. The pizza bomber. This is wacky shit. This is so such a such a trip. Yes, and I think all of you guys um, should watch this on Netflix too. Absolutely. Um, in fact, let's go ahead and play the trailer. Yeah, just so be, I think it's important to play the trailer first, so that you guys can just kind of hear some of the voices, some of the recordings, kind of well, get an idea of kind of get an idea of of the intensity of this case because it's it's pretty intense. So I'll play that for you. We caught him out of the car and cuffed him. I start hearing a beat. His eyes just got real wide. A potential hostage sent into the bank with an explosive around their neck. Something like this had never happened before in the history of the FBI. For being a small town, Erie has its share of bizarre events. But there is nothing that raised so many questions as this case. The call was made to the pizza shop at 1.30. Brian Wells drove to the site where the pizzas were to be delivered. The man told police that he was forced to rob the bank. But the FBI believed that whoever built the caller is patient and secretive. Brian Wells said he was supposed to go on a scavenger hunt. And he was supposed to go from point A to point B to point C, where the keys would be given him to release this bomb. This made worldwide news. The purpose of the pizza bomber plot? Money. How could this happen? Who's the mastermind? Please, what's your emergency? There's a woman that you might want to question. He's the one that did it. There's a lot of tips coming in, but no smoking gun. We didn't have DNA, fingerprints. The bomb had wires that didn't mean anything to prevent the bomb squad from tampering with it. Do you make the bomb? No. Liar. It's a bank robbery, but it's a scavenger hunt. Guy has a cane gun, and it was actually loaded. Cooper, this emotion. I did nothing. Who actually said, hey, let's rob it back? She laughed about it. She said, I got away with it. Was Wells a victim or participant? When you have a bomb... Off to your neck. It became a diabolical game to them. All right. Yeah, so that's... Sorry, it was probably hard to listen to a trailer without, like, having any visuals, but yeah, we thought and, it would help a little bit. And I just I just thought, though, I might have to... I might have to just cut that out because Netflix might copyright that, um, that audio, so... If I have uh, to I end up... I think the trailer's good to go. Are you sure? Yeah. If I end up having to copy or, uh cut it out then I'll, I'll link it i'll definitely link it for you guys you definitely should watch it and then go on and watch it on netflix i think you're gonna be completely fine with just audio and it's yeah okay it's cool. just a trailer it's not copyrighted cool well to an extent but so i'm sure they'd appreciate the shout out yeah yeah seriously <laughs> um so today we're going to be talking about a man named brian douglas wells he is the victim here right He's he's the he's kind of the main I mean, there's multiple victims in in this case, but Brian Wells is um, the presumed innocent victim in this whole thing, which you kind of heard. You kind of heard about a, you know, a, a cane gun and then you heard about a um, a bomb and the bomb has to directly do with Brian Douglas Wells. And we'll tell you the the rundown of, of the events that actually happened, but you should probably know who Brian Wells is. And Brian Wells 
was born November 15, 1956, and when he passed away, he was 46 years old. And this case takes place in a small town in Erie, called Erie, Erie in Pennsylvania. And Brian was kind of an odd dude. He was, um, he was very. He had three sisters. He was very. He kept to himself. He wasn't married or anything like that. He lived alone. Um, he dropped out of high school, and for nearly 30 years, he worked as a pizza delivery man, and was considered a valued and trusted employee of the Mamma Mia Pizzeria in Erie. So that's why this is called the Pizza Bomber case, is because Brian is the bomber essentially, and he worked at the pizza shop and he was the one that ended up uh, delivering this pizza, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But Brian has been described as someone who is very friendly and almost childlike. He loved movies, concerts and scavenger hunts. And the people that knew him never knew he or never knew him as someone who would ever do something like this, which we'll talk about exactly what Brian did. Um, but it's, it's definitely good to have a good understanding of Brian. And, and from what we know, it seems like he's a, a fairly nice guy, you know, pretty innocent and all this as far as we know and really had no clue about what happened to him which we're about to tell you about so let's take you guys to august 28th of 2003 the day of the robbery which i'm guessing by now you guys probably figured out this was a bank robbery a bank robbery yeah bank robbery involving a bomb yes so at 1 30 uh, Mama Mia's Pizzeria received a call to deliver two pizzas to 8631 Peach Street, an address few miles. This was an address only a few miles away from the pizzeria. And this took place on August 28th, 2003. And the owner of the pizzeria is named Tony uh, DeTomo. He's the uh, pizza shop owner. And he answered the call for this pizza order. But he was having a hard time understanding who the caller was. So he actually ended up handing the phone to Brian. And Brian actually took the time to write down his own directions to the location of the pizza delivery. So nothing completely out of the ordinary. Just a pizza order uh, that is uh, made for delivery. Mm -hmm. Later on, the address was later to be found. Uh, that of television station WSEE. TV's transmission tower, which is at the end of a dirt road, kind of out, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um. There's nothing around it. It's like right on the outskirts. It's off of the highway. It's off the beaten path. And it was later discovered that this call was made from a payphone at a right. Shell gas station not far from the delivery site. So very close. Yes. So at two. So it's kind of it's kind of hard to like explain this whole. <laughs> situation yeah <laughs> but we're gonna have to like jump around a bit because we are going off of like the documentary because that's like the main good source for this information right now yeah very, so like, yeah i get. i guess it's better if we kind of give you the just how it played out and then we'll provide the detail later we'll we'll explain. help you make help you make sense of this after yes so at 2 28 p.m brian walked into pnc bank he had a short cane on his right hand and a strange bulge under the collar of his t-shirt. Now this looked really strange. Like basically <sighs> this guy had this giant metal, like medieval looking collar on him. Like it looked like a mouse trap or something like a big thing. It looks like a giant handcuff. It looks like a giant handcuff that fits around the neck, fits around your neck. and then it has a box that was sitting on his chest and he was wearing like this thing was big and bulky. And when you see the video of it, it looks really bizarre. And and he was wearing this big ass t-shirt over it too. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was really weird. I mean, I don't I don't think it looked normal at all. Um, was, I would have seen him and thought, what the fuck? But I think if I saw him, I might even think like that's like some type of health device yeah, because the t-shirt medical. was covering the bomb. Like it just kind of looked like this weird thing he was wearing. Well, it's not like you expect to see somebody walking around with a bomb around their neck every day either. No. <laughs> explosive. But um, Wells passed the teller a note and it said, gather employees with access codes to the vault and work fast to fill a bag with twenty five, $250,000. You only have 15 minutes. He then lifted his shirt to reveal a giant heavy box-like device dangling from his neck. And according to the note, it was a bomb. The teller who told Wells that there was no money and no, or sorry, no way to get the money and get into the vault at that time filled the cash with eight thousand seven hundred and two dollars and handed it over. That's so not much. Do. So not much money in this robbery, which is interesting. No, he definitely did not get the two hundred fifty thousand dollars that he was asking for yeah. in this note. So, so as he walked out, he was literally sucking on a dum dum. Like it's the weirdest thing you. It's so weird. Like this dude has a bomb strapped around his neck. He's mid robbing a bank and he's sucking on a dum dum. It's really weird. So that's obviously unusual. But he hopped in his car and drove off. So some 15 minutes later, state troopers, of course, are responding to this robbery. I mean, if you rob a bank, they're the police are going to be on their way like instantaneously. So the state troopers actually spotted Brian Wells standing outside his car in a nearby parking lot and arrested him. Wells told the cops that while out on a delivery, he had been confronted by a group of black men who chained the bomb around his neck at gunpoint and forced him to rob the bank. The officers called the bomb squad and took positions behind their cars, guns drawn. And for 25 minutes, Brian Wells remained seated on the pavement, his legs curled beneath him. And he... And he apparently looked relatively calm too. I mm -hmm. mean, he was no, he did look for calm. somebody that you can see him in the may the have an, there's a lot of footage of him. Yeah, an explosive device around his neck. It seemed like he was pretty chill sitting there. And he actually was saying, "Did you call my boss?" Uh, Brian asked a trooper at one point, and apparently, uh, or apparently concerned that his employer would think he was, um, you know, just playing hooky from his duties. And it's obvious how serious this guy took his job and what a loyal employee was. So yeah. he was actually concerned that he wasn't going to make it back to the pizza shop and oh continue working God, because any he cared that much. Going on? But that's when this box-like device around his neck started beeping oh, and the so beep scary. started getting faster and faster and Wells all of a sudden started getting really nervous, realizing that the bomb is going to go off. And it looked like he was trying to scoot backward to somehow escape the bomb strapped around his neck. And then it went beep, 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 Boom. Oh, it's so scary, dude. And the device detonated, blasting him violently onto his back. And so it sad. ripped a five-inch square gash into his chest. I feel so bad for this man. He, I had no idea that this thing was actually going to go off. When we started this, I thought it was for sure they like removed it in time or anything. But no. And I should warn you guys, if you're going to go watch the Netflix thing, it actually was really upsetting to me to watch. Like I was pretty bothered by it. They showed it blowing up. And I mean, it wasn't like extremely graphic. It's not like, you know, body parts when flying. It honestly, it looked like not that bad for a bomb. For a off. bomb, yeah. Obviously, I mean, it was. It was horrible, and it killed him. But it, it's just like very intense that that actually went off. And for, to see someone 
right before that moment is very upsetting. Like them, you know, you're seeing footage of them knowing that it's going to happen and they don't know. It's just very, very. Yeah. And I think it was interesting because it, it was pretty clear that law enforcement didn't necessarily think it was a real bomb. Like, I, I yeah, think they, they get, a, I think a, most of the times they get fake bombs. They get a lot of fake bombs. Yeah. Uh, law enforcement does. Yeah. Well, so. they thought, like, you know, maybe this, this guy's excuse is like he said he strapped a bomb. He was forced to do this and put this bomb as like kind of a cover for himself robbing the bank. Um, and they definitely were acting like they thought it wasn't real. Like they just were pointing his guns at guns at him. He kept freaking out and saying like, it's going to go off. It's yeah. going to blow up. It's going to, and they just like continue to just like, nobody helped their him. Guns at him. No one helped him, but I don't know what they would have done, dude. There would have been no way no. to get that thing. And, off. and well, that's the thing is like, who wants to be that officer that risks his life getting blown up? Cause this yeah. guy's got a, you don't know if it's real or fake. So no, I and, get I mean, why the device was the device was really intense and um, I'll probably get to this later in this, but they literally had to cut Brian's head off to take the bomb off his body to yeah. get the, the thing around his neck off from around his neck. They had to decapitate him with and didn't even ask his family if they could do this. No. So obviously it wouldn't have been like a quick like undo the thing for him real fast. No. I don't know if they would have been able to remove it. No. And, and I mean, everybody's like, where was the bomb squad? Well, the bomb squad was uh, three minutes too late. They got there three minutes after they got stuck in traffic and they were kind of across the county. Uh, so they and there was traffic because of this incident. So. They got there too late. I mean, I don't know what the bomb squad would have done. They probably wouldn't have been able to do much anyway, especially if this thing was already predetermined to go off. But it is, it is, uh, it sucks that, you know, Brian Wells took his last couple breaths and then literally just died on the pavement. I mean, with that kind of wound, you bleed out in probably yeah. a minute or so. It was probably, yeah. you know, pretty fast death. But the fact, yeah, like Even you just worse. said, the fact that, you know, because when the bomb squad got there and they look at this device, they're like, what the hell? They couldn't get it off. They no. They couldn't remove it from him no. so and they wanted to know what it was what it was how it worked and take it apart but like the family also wants the you know the body i mean they want their well um, the family didn't get any choice brother or son ask. well yeah that's the thing and they just went ahead and you know cut his head off to retrieve the device so that they could take it apart and without even asking it which i, I that just seems so unacceptable to do that mm -hmm. i mean criminal or not that's just inhumane to yeah. like do i mean to do that it just makes no sense whatsoever Very disrespectful yeah and the, and i mean the family's really pissed off about this even to this day they're yeah. they're not happy that this happened they yeah they're just not happy with the overall outcome of this case which we'll we'll, we'll get into more here so after this happened um, the police of course began sorting through all the physical evidence and inside brian's car they discovered the two foot long cane which actually turned out to be an ingeniously crafted homemade gun and it 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 is legit too they said it fired and everything it was yeah. a shotgun a homemade shotgun yeah. built In out a of cane. a cane which really? people do that and there's i mean it's like a spy weapon it's like a yeah. assassin's weapon god and when they took a look at the bomb it itself was actually handmade as well the bomb actually consisted of two parts, a triple banded metal collar with four keyholes and a three digit combination lock, as well as an iron box containing two six inch pipe bombs loaded with double base smokeless powder. So it was two basically got blown blown up by two pipe bombs and the hinge collar locked around Wells neck like a giant handcuff. Yep. 
And although it was homemade, investigators could tell that it had been built using professional tools. The device also contained two Sunbeam kitchen timers and one electronic countdown timer. It had wires running through it that connected to nothing. Decoys to throw off would-be disablers and stickers bearing deceptive warnings. The contraption was a puzzle in of itself. And it's clear that whoever uh, made the bomb knew what the fuck they were doing. Because this thing was like, they made it look very, they made it look booby trapped. They had, they literally had written, handwritten notes on yeah. the device that said, don't do this. Don't try this. Don't try to unhook the wires. Don't try to cut this because this will go off, which is really bizarre. But one of the most perplexing and intriguing pieces of evidence, though, was actual just handwritten notes that investigators found inside of Brian Wells' car. The notes were actually addressed to the bomb hostage, and the notes instructed Wells to rob the bank of 250000 and then follow a set of complex instructions to find various keys and combination codes hidden throughout Erie. So like scavenger hunts. A straight up scavenger hunt. And he like liked scavenger hunts. Yeah, which is interesting that they yeah. that it worked out this way. So the notes contained drawings, uh, threats, and, and detailed maps. And if Brian Wells did as he was told, the instructions promised that he'd wind up with the keys and the combination required to free him from the bomb. Failure or disobedience would result in certain death, according to the instructions. And there is only, and they said that there is only one way you can survive, and that is to cooperate completely. This powerful booby trap bomb can be removed only by following our instructions. Act now, think later, or you will die. And it seems like he was going to die either way. But yeah. after Brian was killed, the cops tried completing the hunt themselves, but they had a hard time gathering evidence. The cops actually went to the spot in the dirt road where Brian was instructed to deliver the pizzas. And they found and recovered tire impressions that indicated that Brian's car was at that particular site. They also found shoe impressions that matched Brian Wells' shoes and indicated he had also been at the site. And not only that, but they also found a scuff mark on the ground that indicated some sort of struggle or fight occurred that day. So mm -hmm. pr pretty much straight off the bat, they were able to place Brian as the delivery driver of the pizza order to that tower site the tv station tower site yeah and according to the first note uh the note said exit the bank with the money and go to the mcdonald's restaurant which was also in this immediate area to the bank um and pretty close to where the the tower site is as well and the note said get out of the car and go to the small sign reading drive through open 24 hour and in the flower or in the flower bed by the sign, there is a rock with a note taped to the bottom. It has your next instructions. And Brian drove straight there after he left the bank with the bag of cash, which, dude, he only got, he like, he <sighs> probably already knew he was screwed because he only, he only got 8,000 bucks. Like, he didn't yeah. even get, he didn't even get the $250,000. So I can't even imagine what he was probably thinking. He was probably just like, I got to find these keys or codes or whatever to get this thing off of me. And he was able to retrieve a two-page note from the flower bed, which directed him up to Peach Street um, to a wooded area several miles away. And once he got there, he found a container with orange tape that held the next set of instructions. Brian was caught before he got to that clue, however, and the investigators picked up the thread and actually were the ones that found the container with the orange tape. And in it, they found a note directing them two miles south to a small road sign where the next clue would be waiting in a jar in the woods nearby. God. 
so thought so well thought out oh it was meticulously thought out yeah like it like a genius put it together Mm -hmm. and when they got there they found the jar but it was empty so it seemed that whoever was in charge of the scavenger hunt decided to call it off once the plan failed and wells died so it makes you wonder that the people that were probably responsible for this whole heist were the ones actually ahead of brian placing the notes for him the instructions for him wow another thing that was odd was that was what brian was wearing that day he died wearing two t-shirts the outer one emblazoned with a guest clothing logo brian wasn't wearing the shirt at work that morning do you think they purposely used a guest one because it's like guess what's underneath my shirt yeah i bet they did as like a that's so weird that's so weird yeah and his relatives were like that's not a shirt so why would he do this you know why would because that was a that's the whole thing about it is like immediately people were like a lot of people or i should say a lot of people were saying were thinking that brian was responsible like he did this to himself like he put this device yeah more the law enforcement if anything was sort of looking into that but right i think like most people were like uh why the hell would someone do this like that doesn't make sense to strap a bomb on yourself yeah especially when investigators concluded that brian most likely wouldn't have been able to successfully follow the instructions and turn the bomb off in time yeah that was given to him he was pretty much they they literally calculated it and figured out that the actual path which the path was just like crisscross across the, the county it was like it was a lot of distance to cover in the amount of time that they gave him. Yeah. And it was not enough that they concluded. Mm. But because the notes were created from a typewriter, investigators were not able to look into the handwriting of the note. I think some of the notes were handwritten, though. One of them was handwritten because they did. I think they did match some of them. But I think some of a lot of them were typewriter, mm. which made it even harder for investigators to get any leads because yeah. usually you can match up handwriting with other samples and try to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So on Sunday, August 31st, only a few days after Brian died, one of Brian's co-workers and friends, Robert, Pan- I think it's Panetti, Panetti. Yeah. Uh, was found dead at his house. Bob Panetti was an important subject in the investigation. After the bombing occurred, he immediate- immediately changed his attitude. There's interviews of him looking for some type of protection because they thought they were because they thought they were coming after him next initially he was going to be interviewed by investigators and they had met him at the pizza shop they had told him that he was working a they told him that he was working a shift and that if they could move the interview to monday oh yeah i'm sorry (laughs) i am so dyslexic you guys this is why josh should just read it all i'm such a fan he told them that he was working a shift and asked if they could move the interview to monday i'm just so bad at reading out loud when monday never came because he died that Sunday evening, he did appear to have a drug issue. It was not uncommon in Erie, Pennsylvania. Right. And so he's this guy's connected because he's also a delivery driver. Right. Um, at the same yeah, pizza sorry. shop. I probably made that. So investigators were like, oh, what? There's maybe there's a connection there. Maybe there's not. Um, but it appeared that his death was an accidental drug overdose. Mm hmm. So that's the second death that's all in the same time period as Brian yeah. Wells, the bank heist, and everything all together. Yeah. 
And then shit just goes really crazy and we start getting introduced to some new characters here. And that's when we hear about a third death, a frozen body. So three weeks after Brian Wells died, uh, 911 received a call from a man named Bill Rothstein, which Bill Rothstein was a handyman um, and which is no, you know, which makes you wonder if he was possibly involved with creating these devices as we'll, as we'll find out here shortly. But Bill is someone who was described to be as an outsider growing up. Uh, he worked at his family business and people described him as someone who's extremely intelligent, a great friend, someone who is an overall good person for the most part. And his friends have vouched for him. Um, there's actually one of his friends in the documentary that grew up with him and knew him for 30 years and was like shocked when they, they found this out. Mm -hmm. But Bill Rostin called 911 to report that there was a frozen body in a freezer at 8645 Peach Street. I wish we could play the... I know, I wish we could it's too. It's like Netflix has done a great job of like hiding all the clips. I know, they this. really did. <laughs> so you guys are definitely going to have to Just watch, watch it after it. this. Yeah. But he told... So Bill Rostin told the dispatcher that um, there's a person who put the body in the freezer and the person is a woman named Marjorie Deal Armstrong, which Marjorie Deal Armstrong is essentially the evil genius here. And we'll yes. talk about her more because she is basically the root of this. She is the main suspect in this case. And it turns out that Bill Rothstein was a neighbor of Marjorie's and they also had a history together going all the way back to the 60s and 70s. So they've known each other for a very long time They've dated, you know, they've had a relationship and Bill Rothstein has helped her out with various things in the past. And so he decided to help her with this dead body. And the 8645 address is actually uh, Bill Rothstein's house. I don't know if I mentioned that. Um, but Bill tells investigators that she called him up and told him that she had murdered her now ex-boyfriend, Jim Roden, the third body here. And that she needed his help in order to hide the body. And he was afraid to say no because of what she would do to him. And he felt bad for her. So he was willing to help her hide the body. But she actually wanted him to grind up the body in a meat grinder. And Marjorie actually says that it was, a was wood chipper. Bill's idea. Well, there, there was a meat grind. One of them said a, a wood chipper. I think Bill says uh, wood chipper and uh, Marjorie says Bill wanted to get a meat grinder. They oh. went shopping for a meat grinder. Ew, gross. And once, so basically she brings this dead body. That's Jim Roden to Bill and says, I want you to get rid of it. Bill's like, I don't know what to do. Let's just hide it in my freezer for the time being. And then Marjorie's like, we got to get rid of this. And Bill's like, I got to get this out of my freezer. So that's where Bill basically says enough is enough. I'm going to call the authorities. Because I don't want to be involved with this, essentially. Yeah. So that's where the police get called. And then um, the police get to the house and they prepare to get the body. And Bill's house is completely filled with random shit. It literally is a house off of hoarders or maybe yeah, worse. Yeah, it was horrible. It's completely trashed. Yeah. And, and honestly, not surprising that there would be a dead body in there. It's It was it completely trashed. Really bad. And they actually had the dead body in inside of the, inside of the garage and they had a black tarp that went that covered up the freezer yeah and it's like one of those big long freezers that you could probably you could fit a yeah, body into it, it yeah. and 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 that's what 
That's where investigators found Jim Rodin. So they actually arrested Marjorie, who was, at, who was in the house when they had entered, and immediately Marjorie tried to blame it on Bill and said, I have nothing to do with it. I, you know, he's a filthy liar. Well, you know. he he was hardcore blaming her for most right, of it. He right. said, I did some things yes. I shouldn't have done. But like on the phone call, he was like, she's crazy. She killed him. She's yeah. in, so intelligent, such a manipulator. And it was all her. Um, So, yeah. So, so, yeah. So both of them are taken into an interrogation to obviously try to figure out what the hell's going on with his dead body. And, and she it, was threatening to sue, and she kept saying that she had nothing to do with this and that it was Bill's problem. And that was the interesting thing about Marjorie. She just would run her mouth. Like, I wish we had up. more clips. She would not shut up. Uh, she was such a talker. In fact, we should look up her birthday. <sighs> I wonder what sign she is. But so, Marjorie, so let's just talk about Marjorie real quick, just so people can understand who Marjorie is. Yes. Marjorie Deal Armstrong is a very, very intelligent woman. And she was actually actually very pretty back in the day. Um, yeah, not just pretty, but really smart. Well really liked. smart. She was kind of a weirdo when she was younger. They said though that she wasn't super social and stuff. But she kind of went through a period in her like early, like her young adult years, where she like was living her prime, I guess. And she yeah. was she was really very, really gorgeous. Yes, and very intellectually smart. She had a bachelor's degree in sociology and a master's degree in education, which is interesting. Yeah, but. She is a master manipulator. She is mm -hmm. the honestly the master of manipulators. I don't know if I've ever seen somebody that can manipulate, especially men, the way that she could. And that's yeah. kind of her whole thing is her ability to manipulate Just men talk, talk, to talk do and ass. say things that she wants and deny, deny. Like nobody can deny better than she can. Right. Like, yeah, she will deny and, and threaten, threaten. Yes. And threaten scare with you. Legal action and, and try to outsmart you or make you feel like scared. Right. Yeah. So that's what she did. So when they're at their, you know, at first when this dead, you know, Jim Roden's found, she's threatening and saying, this is all Bill's idea and I'm going to sue the shit out of him. Even if I'm in jail, yeah. I'm going to sue him. And that's just all have some money. his like, problem. She came from a little, little bit of money, a little um, inheritance and stuff. Yeah, her, yeah, she did. Decent amount. But the body of Jim Roden actually took a total of four days to thaw. It was completely frozen through it was wrapped up and he was like in a fetal position inside mm. this freezer mm. and when they finally um thawed him out they were able to after they did the medical examination they determined that he was killed by a shotgun to the head before he's put in the freezer and that's essentially at this point in the case because there's a bank robbery anytime there's a bank robbery involved with a crime usually um, if not always, it gets handed over to the FBI because it's a federal entity. And as soon as it's a federal crime, they they usually take over the investigation, which uh, was the case here. The FBI FBI kind of led the, the investigation from here as well as um, partnered with the Pennsylvania State Police, who also worked on this. But they found out that Jim Roden was actually killed three weeks before the bank robbery. So we're still trying to figure out what the connection is there. Um, but that is the third death in this case. Um, Marjorie, we've already talked about a little bit, but she she is obviously extremely smart, but it's clear that she's mentally ill. Yes, very. She's, she's very mentally ill, and over the years, professionals diagnosed her with several disorders, including bipolar disorder, uh, mania mania, also known as manic syndrome, um, as well as pressured speech, and extreme narcissism. I mean, she's very narcissistic and definitely has a severe personality disorder. 
Mm-hmm. And she just has always struggled throughout her life. Um, Couldn't hold down a job, struggled with getting through her daily life. She was briefly married, actually, for a, a, long, a while before this. But her husband died from hitting his head on a coffee table, which is a very unusual yes. and questionable. Oh, yeah. And actually, five men that she was with throughout her life actually died prematurely or, or from weird and bizarre uh-huh. reasons. <laughs> oh, my God. One of her exes hung himself after she moved out. And she even had the nerve to sue one of the hospitals that her husband died in for negligence. And one, she was the master of manipulation, dude. And she was extremely smart. And definitely had an evil streak to her, I well, think. Well, absolutely. And I mean, she was fucked up, but she also was just a little evil, too. Yeah, because in 1984, she was actually arrested for killing her boyfriend, Robert Thomas, but was actually acquitted on grounds of self-defense. Oh, so creepy. And um, one of her old husbands, she asked if she could keep part of his right, leg bone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's just a, she's a kind of a creep. She's just kind of a weirdo. Total creep. And honestly, it's very bizarre to to know that she so many men around her died yeah. or she actually killed one of her boyfriends so why couldn't she have killed this Jim Roden guy yeah I mean clearly at this point right seriously but like we said she when she got arrested for the murder of Jim um, she just completely denied it and said Bill was the guilty one and at this point investigators are starting to think that maybe Brian Wells death is somehow linked to Marjorie because she insisted that she had absolutely nothing to do with this case and that the only way that these two cases could be tied together was if Bill was in on the bank robbery. So she starts trying to point things uh, to Bill mm-hmm. being involved with also the Brian Wells case. Mm-hmm. So as you're seeing, this is just, this is a mega, Endless mega case. Fuckery. Mega case. I need a water break. <laughs> I'm taking a sip of water because yeah. this is just a lot. So the investigation continues and Bill actually took the detectives working on the case through his house and gave him a tour and a timeline of how everything happened. So Bill is also a manipulator as well. Mm -hmm. And he is actually very intelligent and intellectually uh, very similar in personality to Marge or Marjorie. Yeah. Which is very interesting. Yeah, he was. But that's why she liked him so much. Right. Because she felt like Bill was one of the only men in her life that could match him or match her intellectually. So that's Mm -hmm. why she liked him so much. He kind of like challenged her. Yeah, absolutely. So Bill basically is taking the detectives back through his house being like, all right, here's how it went down. Mm -hmm. Here's how here's how the body got there, etc. And he actually said that he melted the rifle uh, with an acetane torch. Um, He also showed them the suicide note. So the actual rifle that Marjorie used to kill Jim Roden. He melted it and got rid of the evidence. So already we're starting to realize these guys are are evil geniuses in the sense that they know how to cover their tracks. Mm-hmm. They know how to get rid of the evidence. They know how to make it look like something else. And they spend that it a isn't. lot of time planning and talking about this. Right. Clearly. Right. Um, he also showed them the suicide note that he wrote because he was also contemplating killing himself because of the stress of having a dead fucking body to deal with. The suicide note clearly said that the death of Jim had nothing to do with the Brian Wells case. But this doesn't quite match up with the rest of of his story. And one thing that is important to note is that the house that Bill lived in was his house and that he had been in it for over 50 years. He actually grew up in the house where this dead body was found. That's so creepy. How could you commit that in your own childhood home? Right. So, So investigators are starting to dig up a possible motive 
and possible link for Bill Rothstein being somehow connected to this bank heist because Bill actually, um, Bill's siblings wanted to sell the house, but their parent, um, their parents had died and Bill was the actual um, estate holder. So he held sort of the keys to the house and he had no interest in selling it. And Bill had actually lied to his siblings and said that he put the home on the market for 90,000. And when he, in actuality, he had listed the house for 250,000. How did his siblings not find out? About yeah, that? I don't Can't know. You just That's... like Zillow that shit and see what he sold it for. Yeah. Well, I mean, this was back in the early 2000s. So, or Still. possibly earlier in the nineties, but yeah. Um, what's, so what's interesting about this is that the real estate agent that, he was working was obviously told him that 250 was way too high and insisted but bill was like no we're going to keep it at 250 but so what's interesting is that investigators are like aha bill wanted 250,000 dollars for his house and mm. the note that brian wells brought into the bank also asked for 250,000 dollars so mm. specific amounts there coincidence yeah maybe but Bill's house and everything all of this is happening very very close to each other. Yeah, so it's very odd that there's this connection there mm -hmm. So investigators bring bill in to take a polygraph test which he passed so obviously it's Most of us possible. know it's possible to fool the test It's not 100% foolproof and bill is a very smart individual and probably knows how to cheat the test and knows how to to get past it Mm-hmm but Bill also had another secret that he had been keeping from the FBI. He had a roommate and an old friend named Floyd Stockton. So this is another co-conspirator to this bank heist and murders. And Floyd Stockton actually had suddenly moved out of Bill's house the same day as the bank robbery. And the FBI didn't actually find out about Floyd Stockton until Marjorie told them and Marjorie said that Stockton decided that he had to leave this area because of pressures from the bank robbery case. And Floyd Stockton was not not a good dude. He was actually wanted in a different state because he had previously been charged with raping a teenage girl. And he had claimed that he knew nothing about the bank robbery. So the FBI also gave Stockton a polygraph test in which he passed as well. And at that point in time in this investigation, Floyd Stockton and Bill Rothstein were both officially cleared by the FBI, which is crazy to yeah. think about. Now. Yeah, that really is. <laughs> That's like not good work by then. So it's important to note that at this point, there's two different cases really going on. There's this frozen body case of Jim Roden, the murder of Jim Roden. And then there's this bank heist and uh, Brian Wells uh, murder, you know, at this point, possibly suicide going on as well. So there's two different cases going on. So right now we're talking about the frozen body case, which was taking place in January of 2004. So five months after uh, James Roden was killed, Marjorie was in jail facing murder charges. And Bill Rothstein testified that Marjorie shot her boyfriend after argu arguing about money. And the judge at this point ordered that Marjorie stand trial. Bill Rothstein, on the other hand, cut a good deal due to his good behavior and cooperation with investigators. Which just pissed off Marjorie even more. Which Marjorie is just like, what the She had the so hell? much resentment about him. Yes, yes. She felt she very... hated him towards the end. Yes. And Bill would only spend a few years in prison with misdemeanor charges like abuse of a corpse. He would also still 
Uh, he would also still get out to be or still get to be out on bail until sentencing that following fall. And Marjorie publicly stated that Rothstein was a filthy liar and he indeed killed Rodin and should also be charged for the murder of Brian Wells. So Marjorie at this point is becoming desperate is like, and just completely denying that she had any involvement and that this was all Bill Rothstein and they have the wrong person. She's innocent and that they should go after Bill. So that following July, uh, Bill Rothstein actually admitted himself to the Mill Creek Community Hospital, and he ended up dying seven days later from Hodgkinson's lymphoma, which is something that takes a really long time. And normally you would know about that for a long time. Right. So they thought that he knew about it and kind of didn't tell anyone that he was dying. Yeah. To, kind, to lay low. Yeah, and totally. lower the urgency. Totally. So they were not able to get any sort of answers from him once he passed away, obviously, and that's very frustrating for investigators. And the final chapter of this case closed several months after Rostin died when Marjorie randomly confessed to killing Jim Roden. She said the reason that she shot him was because he had a fight, or they had a fight, about another woman. And Marjorie requested a plea deal. She claimed that she wasn't in her right mind when she killed Jim Roden. And, and to... to- to add to that she she was basically like claiming insanity pretty much yeah. like she's like a meant like i have well mental. i mean i kind of think she should like yeah. god but the thing was is like she was so smart like she knew better and she knew what she was doing so she wasn't like and i think she somewhat played up the craziness because she was smart enough to know that that could save her life if she was considered crazy so she they said that she would act extra crazy around the right, prison right, guards right, right. And, yeah 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 investigators and stuff yeah but then like her prison uh her like inmate other inmates would be like she's sharp as attack she's telling us all this shit she's She's admitting to how everything went down Mm -hmm. she's admitting to involvement now with brian wells and all these other things that she never admitted she was very very smart about how she portrayed herself to investigators what she said she only said what she had to and she really these these Bill Rothstein and Marjorie really did manipulate the feds and the police throughout this oh, whole definitely. thing. They really had control of it yes. for the most part. Um, so she ended up with a seven year minimum sentence and option of parole from good behavior after her sentence where she would go to receive mental health help. And this is just about the frozen body case. This yeah. is just about yes. Jim Roden. This is right. not this anything is not to do with Brian Wells or Brian the bank Wells. robbery. Right. So later on, Marjorie wrote a to whom it may concern letter to the police. And this letter was an attempt to bargain with the police. She offered to give info about a cold case not related to the bank robbery. So a completely different case. And the case involved a guy named Ken Barnes, who was an old fishing buddy of hers. But unfortunately, this letter and Marjorie's plan never became of anything. So she came up with another plan because of the fact that she wanted to move from uh, Muncie prison to Cambridge Springs to be closer to her money and her attorney who didn't want to make the drive all the way up to Muncie prison. Mm -hmm. And so to do this, she basically was like holding information ransom saying she had information about other crimes and Marjorie actually brought up the pizza bomber and she said, I know Bill Rothstein was involved, but she Mm. doesn't give any more details about how she knows this. But she said she was certain he had something to do with it. So the FBI got a warrant to go through her belongings and they ended up finding an angry letter that Marjorie had written to a bank. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it just so happens that this bank is the PNC bank that actually got robbed by Brian Wells. Huh. What about that? Because what happened what was, yeah, seriously. No, I know. It's such a, like, really? Because apparently the manager of this PNC bank let Marjorie's dad empty out a family safety deposit box that contained valuables of hers, apparently. So this pissed her off. And mm-hmm. she was pissed at her dad and at the bank. And I, I, I'm i not sure if this will show up later, but she, Marjorie actually wanted her dad dead at one point. She there's There's evidence that shows that she may have even been conspiring to kill her own father because her own father had basically completely like extra out of his life because all she wanted was money and just was obviously just an evil evil fuck evil fuck yeah exactly but marjorie was actually able to end up convincing the officials to move her to cambridge springs if she gave some details about these so-called secrets that she had so marjorie told them that when the robbery took place bill rossing had his blue van towed off his property and didn't return until after he had been cleared by the fbi so maybe Bill Rossing had something to do with this. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious at this point that maybe <laughs> there is connections here. Maybe. <laughs> so now we get in. So now the, the FBI has been investigating this whole thing because the FBI pretty much from the very beginning has thought that there was um, connections between all of it. And the FBI has even said that if they, if the state police had turned over more information, uh, further on in the case and they did that they may have figured this out before bill ross had died had been able to <laughs> sorry i can't really give you shit i constantly fuck up when i read that yeah yeah no i know i do <laughs> fuck up when i read sometimes no it's me that does it most of the time but anyway sorry go ahead so they showed a diagram uh or okay so the fbi um the lead investigator of the fbi fbi was jerry clark who was Rewatching the walkthrough video of Bill's garage. And this is later on after this all took place, uh, pretty far later on. And in the actual walkthrough video, they showed a diagram that was on his desk. And on the drawing, there was a little hand drawn arrow that looked identical to an arrow that was drawn on the instructions of the bomb. Because mm. they're looking for any links now to link Bill Rostein to this making of this bomb, this handmade bomb that ended up around Brian Wells' neck. And another piece of evidence that was um, that they found or was able to detect imprints or writing from a different paper that had transferred to the scavenger notes. So uh, basically, they think he had the scavenger note under another paper that he was writing on. Therefore, the pen created indents. So. So, yeah, so they're basically thinking that he wrote those notes, those scavenger notes that he hid everywhere Mm -hmm. because they had these imprints. Yeah, that makes sense. It's it's actually really interesting. Um, I learned this in some t- some type of like, cr- like crime, maybe a crime class or s- my law class or something. But just like the how you can like yeah, take yeah. a notepad and see what was written on it before by like lightly sketching on it and it comes up. So that's basically what they did. Yep, exactly. Because they were trying to get get try to see if they can find a match for the handwriting of the notes. And when they actually showed uh, Bill's longtime friend uh, one of the scavenger hunt notes, he was extremely confident. I mean, like 
99.9% confident that the handwriting was actually Bill Rothstein's handwriting. Mm -hmm. So they think they don't have physical proof to link him to this. But his friend, like, I mean, if you guys watch the documentary, like his friend, his friend was like, I never wanted to believe he would do this. I thought my whole life, yeah. this is my best friend. And I had no Couldn't idea, but it. this confirmed it. it for me. I know my friend's handwriting. That was his handwriting and he did it. Yep. So because of this new finding, they think that Bill Rossing was the one who built the device and actually wrote the clues. And he was careful not to make any purchases that could be traced back to him. And he also made sure to dispose of any sort of tools used to create the bomb. And unfortunately, by the time officials had made these discoveries and made these connections, Bill had long since died. So mm. Bill went to the grave with the secrets of this entire case because Marjorie is crazy and she does not want to give up any information. So what is Marjorie's involvement with this whole thing? Hmm. So in the summer of 2005, a man named Professor Sedwick said that he was driving south on Highway I-79 not far from the bank robbery site the day that Brian Wells died. And he reported seeing a gold car driving on the barrier coming at him full speed the opposite way, Ugh. which you would fucking remember that and remember, who, especially yeah. if they were coming right at you on the side, mm -hmm. um, you know, on the side of the road, you would probably fucking look to see who was driving. <laughs> yeah, you'd think. And um, this guy said that it was a woman and he actually made full eye contact with uh, with her and the woman was most definitely Marjorie deal Armstrong and because there were sightings uh, of her on the highway from multiple witnesses Marjorie couldn't deny that she was on the highway that day so she was like yeah I was on the highway but you don't know why I was on the highway I was just yeah. driving even though I was driving the wrong way and she denied that she was driving the wrong way because um I think she's I think she um, only admitted to being on it she did not admit to driving the wrong way or or even would entertain that idea yeah and she continued just saying she had absolutely nothing to do with the robbery and that she was completely innocent and like we said earlier luckily some of the women that were inmates at the same time as marjorie were able to get some information about the case because she was mm -hmm. actually like bragging Blagging. like yeah. bragging to other inmates in the prison dude so many of these like <laughs> cocky ass criminals do that too yeah and it's like that's so stupid because they, they can still caught. use that information against you yep and one of the inmates uh that overheard marjorie talking about this was kelly michaela uh, michaela or michaela mm -hmm. and she, this particular inmate actually took very very detailed notes when her and marjorie would talk about this brian wells case and in anything else marjorie uh, was willing to share and she was actually able to find out more information about marjorie than the officials were able to find out from her <laughs> and apparently the notes included many details such as marjorie saying that bill rostein built the neck bomb um, this inmate also said that marjorie told her that floyd stockton bill rostein's roommate was definitely involved in the robbery marjorie said that the robbery is definitely tied to the frozen body case and that Marjorie also talked about Brian Wells. It's not, and apparently she was quoted as saying, it's not like we didn't measure his neck for the collar. Like literally <laughs> bragging about building this, literally bragging about putting this 
collar bomb around Brian Wells' neck. So ridiculous. And of course, when confronted about these claims that she's making, Marjorie just said that it was all a filthy lie and that all the inmates are nuts and you can never believe an inmate because they're crazy. And she said that the reason that people reported seeing her near the bank on the day of the robbery was because she was just out casually shopping along Peach Street. <laughs> Casual. So we now know that there could be another person, another co-conspirator involved. And this this is kind of where things really broke, broke open in this case. And that is when Marjorie's friend, Ken Barnes, gets involved. Mm-hmm. And Ken was a very interesting dude. And a big element to this. A huge element to this. A huge element to understanding what actually happened. And so Ken, a little background, he is nicknamed Cocaine Ken. He's a crackhead, mm-hmm. just probably... He looks like it, too. <laughs> yeah, let me tell just, you. He's just, freaky looking. Yeah, just, you know, kind of a low-life person, but also a manipulator. Also described as being a manipulator. Interesting that all of these people involved in this crime are manipulators. And that's another reason why Ken and Marjorie had a long history together of being fishing buddies. And in a series of different interviews in 2005, the authorities found out that Ken and Brian Wells had a mutual friend that they were both associated with. And that's where another person comes in that's involved named Jessica Hoopsick, who is a... So one of the things that they found out after searching Brian Wells' house is that he frequently visited... Uh, hookers or prostitutes yes and one of these individuals that he would often associate with was this jessica hoopsick who also knows uh ken because she would buy cocaine from ken but they had like jennifer hoopsick and him had like kind of a relationship yeah. going like a care about you more than just sex type of relationship right. yeah and so um yeah brian brian wells and jessica would have sex which he would then pay her for, and then she would then go back and buy coke from Ken. So she was addicted to cocaine. And at first he tried to interview Jessica, but she refused to speak with anyone about Brian. So when the FBI did a search warrant on Kent's house, they described it as being absolutely disgusting. It was just a same sort of situation as Bill Rothstein. It's very interesting that these highly intel- intelligent people have like the messiest houses. Because... Mm-hmm. Ken's house was disgusting. He had food everywhere. There was dog shit everywhere. Random mattresses. It was just complete hoarder's house. And they weren't actually able to find anything that directly linked Ken to making the bomb. But they did find several magazines that talked about building electronics that could be used as bombs. So even though there wasn't like concrete proof to link him to it, mm-hmm. it definitely seems that he was involved. Like yeah, just clearly. from a common sense point of view. Mm-hmm. It just like wouldn't make sense any other way. So after it took a, a, a long time to really break it or to really crack Ken. But Ken did finally admit that Marjorie had solicited him to do the bank robbery and to kill her dad in um, as well. So, yeah, that's that's the kind of uh, person that he was. Well, She was angry at her father. Yeah, I talked about that. Uh, yeah, earlier. I know. Yeah. But like. To the point where she was willing to let him die. Right. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. that's how pissed off Marjorie. Yeah. She's like, ruthless. she was like, don't ruthless. fuck with my money. Don't and she was just like all about spite. Like I feel like she was constantly trying to get back people who she felt like wronged her. Like yes. that's 
Yeah, she's just like miserable, miserable yes, bitch. I'm absolutely. sorry. I know she's so nasty this woman. She is. And she looks creepy as hell. Yeah. Yeah, cuz she was mad cuz her father was giving away inheritance that she thought was hers. He was just her dad was basically just giving his money away to neighbors to yeah. you know, to whoever he wanted to cuz he didn't have anybody else to leave it to other than Marjorie, but he didn't want to give it to Marjorie cuz he knew she was involved with you know crimes and and whatnot so he didn't want that to go to her but um it turned out that ken barnes actually said in a past interview that marjorie wanted to hire him as a hitman and for some for some reason the police didn't carry this information along to the fbi which this happens a lot in cases for whatever reason there's a breakdown between local and state authorities and federal authorities and i think it's because there's ego there there's ego yes. you know like the state and local police want to want to solve the cases on their own mm. and you know they probably feel i think they come into like we're better than you guys they, so yeah they well yeah like, i think the feds always come in like we're yeah. smarter we're better we're out of the right we're, yeah way. like let the elites here. come in yeah. and take care of this shit like yeah. you, you can't handle this that's how they act for sure so they oftentimes they don't pass along important ass information that may help one another <laughs> yeah. and they just let it sit mm. so the fbi could have got this information a long time ago and started making links apparently faster than the police were. But Marjorie apparently reveals that Bill Rothstein told Marjorie that he needed two kitchen timers from her in order to create the bomb. And this was a big deal because there was no public news of the bomb having two timers. So the only way that Marjorie would have known um, that that was if she had something to do with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Clearly. She thought she had picked up all those little details. She man. thought, yeah, she thought she had covered everything and covered her ass pretty well. I mean, she is always denied with confidence. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, she's yeah, a nut. no, I know. But they also found out that Marjorie didn't have as much money as she talked about having. She always talked about, you know, that she was well off and that she mm -hmm. had money. Well, she did have money, but it wasn't like an exuberant amount of money. Yeah. But apparently one time her and Ken Barnes got into a big fight because she owed him money, but she refused to pay it. So Ken and his friends actually robbed her house, Marjorie's house, and took over $100,000 that had been stolen. But they And they straight up got away with it. They never got charged. So and that pisses her off That too. pissed her off a lot. <laughs> a lot. So on December 9, 2005, Ken Barnes admits finally that he was in on the robbery he gives his confession essentially and just spills spills the beans mm -hmm. and ken barnes says that marjorie deal armstrong was the mastermind behind the whole thing and this was the, the obviously genius the, yeah this was obviously the biggest crack in the case that investigators had this far and uh ken said that on the day before the robbery there was a meeting at the rothstein's house to discuss the roles that each person would play and he said that the meeting consisted of him Bill Rothstein, Marjorie Deal Armstrong, Floyd Stockton, Bob uh, Panetti, who was Brian Wells' co-worker, but also Brian Wells was there, apparently. Mm. And Ken said that his role in the heist was to be a lookout. And he said that uh, him and Marjorie are, he said that Marjorie came to his house shortly before noon on the day of the heist. And when Marjorie picked Ken up, Ken asked, where's Jim? He was, and because Jim was supposed to be a, a part of the heist. He was the, he was the one guy that was going to drive the getaway car. And Marjorie just replied and said, he's in bed. I think he's sick. 
with the flu even though she was clearly lying because because jim is dead in bill rothstein's freezer <laughs> so on the day of the heist ken barnes and marjorie go to the shell station and bill meets them there and bill rothstein's the one that made the pizza call or pizza order and then after they made the call they went to bill's house ken marjorie and bill were all waiting at bill's house for brian to come up and i think uh i actually i think it was the tower where they met brian uh for the pizza uh was actually they went to the tower station afterwards hmm. um maybe ken i can't remember maybe ken said they went to bill's house actually i think he might have said they went to bill's house but in actuality they were actually at the tower station so when brian came up brian got out of the car delivered the pizza and ken described brian as just waiting to get paid well marjorie ken and bill are all eating the pizza or or floyd stockton were just eating the pizza at that point which is weird that's so weird that they they're just like the eating it yeah like, like dude that's clearly it was fuck. yeah seriously so they eat the pizza and then apparently according to ken floyd stockton then brought out the bomb collar and brian wells then tried to run because he obviously was like what the hell yeah. getting freaked out yeah what the fuck dude i mean i would run too yeah Especially seeing that contraption, it looked like something so creepy. Yeah, like I mean, a medieval torture. Seriously, device. it almost looks like something that would like squeeze your head or something, yeah. like Ugh. decapitate Freaking you or something. Dude. So Brian Brian Wells tried to run away, and Marjorie and Floyd Stockton grabbed him, and they were able to put the bomb on him. And according to Ken, Marjorie then put a T-shirt on him in order guess, to cover sure. the bomb and handed him to the or handed him the bank robbery note. And according to Ken, she told Brian that if you happen to get caught to tell them that some black guys held you down and put the bomb on you. Good plan. <laughs> and then I'm they... surprised he did that, though. Like, I don't get it. Like, he, he did in the beginning. Remember when they were like, the police were talking to him? He was like, these guys put it on me. These black guys put it on me. Why, why they would just... he play along with that? And why if the so the whole but maybe maybe he thought that they could detonate it from far away so he was scared well the whole controversy with this whole thing including with Branwell's family members is that they believe he was just an innocent victim in this case and that he was just happened to be the pizza guy that showed up at this right. site and they put the bomb on him but it's interesting the way things played out because if he was that why did he do the things that he did afterwards like think about it if you showed up somewhere and you they put a bomb call around you and told you to do something and told you to drive somewhere i guess i mean i guess you would probably follow what they said because you'd hope that what they said would be true but in actuality like yeah. what would you go just go drive straight to the authorities I mean, they could like, have really fucking scared him dude like, i guess the they said they, they were, were watching like, him and stuff that's right they were told, yeah, yeah like and they it said act now think later so i'm sure he didn't think much and i think maybe he thought if I say it was these black guys and they put whatever on me that maybe they were listening somehow or watching somehow and they wouldn't do anything to him because they're like, oh, he's not going to rat us out. Maybe who's his last ditch? I mean, they could have had a microphone on him for all he knew. He doesn't know exactly what was on him. So maybe it was just an attempt to continue looking like he was going with the plan and stuff as mm -hmm. much as possible to try to save his life. Yeah, I mean, that's the only yeah. thing I can think of because I cannot imagine that this guy purposely was involved in this in any way I yeah mean, well so why would weird. you sign up to do that and i mean i it turns out though that 
no nobody other than maybe Marjorie and Bill knew about the bomb collar or that there would be a live bomb. That's that's another interesting about this. But according to Ken on this day, uh, they gave they gave Brian the shotgun cane and said that if he had any issues, he could use this. And then they proceeded to park a car near the bank and Ken and Marjorie took turns using binoculars to watch Brian while he robbed the bank. So they were like across the street watching the bank robbery go down. Hmm. So after Brian watches the bank or uh, after they watch Brian rob the bank, they then drive south on Peach Street to Bill Rothstein's house where they meet up with Bill in order to switch vehicles. And that's when Marjorie gets on the highway going the wrong direction. And it was later discovered that the bomb had the intentions of being fake, but then Marjorie secretly decided to make it real. Authorities then go to confront Floyd Stockton later on. And Stockton and the court made a deal that he wouldn't get into any trouble, so immunity, if he agreed to testify against against these, against Marjorie. Hmm. On March 27, 2007, three and a half years after the robbery, Floyd Stockton confesses and says that he was ordered by Rothstein to put the bomb on Brian's neck. And once he did so, he was able to see the sheer fear on Brian's face. And so he decided he needed to get out of there ASAP. And Floyd Stockton claims that he didn't know who made the bomb or who wrote the notes. So he probably knows way more than he said clearly. But he got a pretty good deal, immunity for that. Like, geez. That's amazing. So four years after the robbery on July 9th, 2017, officials announced that they will file bank robbery and other charges against Marjorie. And apparently they also said they would charge Ken Barnes. And it was announced that Marjorie allegedly recruited Ken Barnes and hired him to kill her father and then would pay him the money received from the bank robbery. And it seemed that the entire like people plot, agree to do that shit, dude, like kill I, someone and then I'll pay you later with that money yeah. that I might get. Seriously, if my plan works. So weird. And it seemed that the entire plot was created because people were in need of money, which what a crazy way to obtain money. Yeah. Out of all the ways that you can obtain money, why do it in this like and it makes you almost think that maybe it wasn't about the money and in whoever mastermind it, whether it was you know, Marjorie or yeah. Bill Rothstein. Maybe it was just kind of a game, like the ultimate game, you know, the ultimate proof. I wonder if at first they were even serious about it and then at time as time went on, it just like spiraled. Yeah. It it, it could have been something like that. I mean, I don't know. It just seems hard to believe that Marjorie would go through all this in order to get money to pay Ken to kill her dad or that Bill would just do all of this just to get money to settle an estate to get the house at he wanted like that was trashed mm-hmm. really doesn't make sense that they no. would do this for money um but the investigation concluded that brian became involved in a role and so he was a victim as well as a participant in the robbery so yeah that that's the the biggest thing about this is that uh the uh, u.s attorney's office the feds basically concluded that brian wells was a co-conspirator and and that because of that he would always be essentially remembered as like taking place as a conscious participant in this crime which is crazy and Mm -hmm. shitty for i mean shitty if he was in fact completely innocent of this and a completely innocent victim which what you know what what actually we find out later and what what you'll see in the documentary if you watch it is jessica hoopsick who had this relationship with brian wells and uh 
she actually confesses to the documentary uh, filmmaker that she was she got paid five thousand dollars from Marjorie and Bill to bring some yeah. unwilling or just some kind of dumb participant. She probably into regrets this. this so much, and she probably didn't know the extent. No. no, well, I don't think she no, knew she that didn't. somebody was going to die because of no. this. But Jessica, who's addicted to cocaine she yeah. she even admitted she's like i did it yeah. for the money so she looked fucked up she too does. when they were she interviewing does. her she looked sad over it though like like she feels really bad because i think she somewhat loved bill yeah i do too i think i mean she, brian i'm sorry yeah i think she did uh definitely care for him deeply i mean she said it wasn't love but she's definitely said it was special feelings like mm -hmm. that she felt but the reason why brian if he was at that at the house the day before at the pre-robbery meeting or whatever is because she brought him there to just introduce them just so that they were familiar with who was going to be the pizza delivery guy that would be there. And Jessica admits that she actually gave uh, Brian and or Bill and Marjorie his work schedule. So they knew that Brian was going to be working the next day and delivering pizzas. So, I mean, it seems like Brian was pretty innocent in all of this. And I mean, we don't know for sure if he had zero knowledge of of what was going to happen because it kind of seems like he does but yeah it definitely seems like he had no idea that he was g literally going to die that day that's for sure mm -mm. but no charges were filed against him i mean he died so yeah. i'd be fucked up to file charges against him anyway that's so crazy but investigators believe there's pieces of evidence to show that he was involved i just can't believe that but i don't know guys what do you think I want to know your thoughts. I just like really have a hard time believing that someone would be in on their own death. That's really weird. Yeah. We just didn't, I guess, didn't realize the extent. But still, like, I don't know, man. I don't know. But be, but because, but because, so the whole thing is like Brian Wells' family wants justice for Brian, which rightfully so. I understand that. The problem is, is that nobody's been charged for his death. Nobody's been held responsible for Brian Wells' death. No. Because they haven't been able to prove who was the mastermind behind this or who ultimately made the bomb live and made made the murder happen. Like how the bomb explode was it, you know, it had a phone in it actually. And I think they they found out that it didn't do anything, but the phone didn't the I guess the bomb bomb just well, who see, set the timer on the bomb. Is right. Like, who set but that? If, if it had a phone on it, maybe Brian knew that. And that's why he was saying like what he had. He thought he had to say. Yeah, they, yeah, you know, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. But because of the circumstances of the case, and because uh, federal investigators uh, named Brian Wells as a co-conspirator to this crime, they could not bring the death penalty against anybody involved with this, including Marjorie, which was essentially what the the Wells family wants. Is like yeah. somebody to fucking pay for yeah, they blowing this guy up public execution style. It's bizarre and brutal. And it's it's very frustrating that there wasn't like a, a I think a tough enough sentence on like any. No, any no, and I mean Marjorie was actually offered a plea deal, but she actually denied it because she wanted to go to court and prove herself that she <laughs> was innocent and mentally competent. And it took a while, but the judge consulted with doctors in order to run tests to see if they thought Marjorie would be able to partake in her defense. And after um, at first they were determined she was determined to be unable to or unstable in order to stand trial. But after several months of medication and therapy, the judge didn't change his mind. I was like, all right, you're competent now to stay in trial. 
So on October 15, 2010, seven years after the robbery took place, it was finally time for the trial, and Marjorie Deal Armstrong was found guilty on all accounts of her actions, including conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery, armed bank robbery in which death resulted, and use of a destructive device to further along a violent crime. And Marjorie would then be sentenced on February 28, 2011. And before stating her sentence, the judge gave a small speech about Marjorie. Um, the judge said that the defendant has a long history of mental illness, but there are people with these conditions who do not solicit to kill their father or shoot someone in cold blood to mm -hmm. silence a perceived threat. Of course, mental illness is not always an excuse. No. You know, The unfortunate thing here, though, to think about is that like Marjorie should have been should have been getting help so much so yeah much and i mean you can't than, say that like yeah you know like it, it's kind of falls on her family or people around her that were with her husbands and stuff or like you know you gotta you gotta get people help when they are crazy and saying stuff like this yeah and i mean you can't just blame it on mental illness now no not illness. definitely not it's not an excuse or anything you can blame it on but it's certainly a factor here and it i just want to remind people about how mental illness has a has a role has a in this. major role in it because people can't if you can't think right you can't make sense of your reality then yeah you know just living yeah and she clearly derailed I mean this girl was like really smart really beautiful and like completely went off track so so yeah Marjorie was sentenced to life in prison plus thirty years and she still is yeah. like I'm gonna appeal this well she's the only one that I I'm think gonna got good enough sentence then i'm gonna i'm gonna fight this i'm innocent of course she always does dude <laughs> and she still doesn't understand to this day why she was the only only one doing time for the crime because bill's well, dead floyd was set free after he got out of jail uh, for his rape charge uh ken barnes is still in prison but ken barnes actually says he likes being in prison because uh, he's <laughs> off of drugs now so oh, good for you kenny it's better for him but yeah, I mean, that's that's basically it mm -hmm. um, in a nutshell, really. I mean, there's a lot to it, and the documentary does a good job of visually representing what we talked about mm -hmm. and going in some more detail. There's some more. There's other little details with Jessica. I think we covered covered it pretty well, though. Yeah, because she hard confesses to cover that. it too. Because I mean, the main source for this is the Netflix documentary. It's four episodes long. It's not just a documentary; it's a series. It's um, four episodes of four hard. hours worth. Yeah. And we're covering this in an <laughs> Trying hour and a half. Trying to like condense it. So hopefully we did a good job. But I definitely would recommend watching this. It's it's very interesting, especially now that you kind of know the details would probably be even more interesting to watch. And it's honestly the, still a pizza <coughs> bomber mystery because yeah. investigators still are not 100% clear on who made the bomb, who is the mastermind, who created the plan to do this, who, who made who everything, initiated yeah. everything. And Marjorie still is just saying, I'm innocent. And had she had nothing to do with Brian Wells at whatsoever or the bank heist. And to this day, no one has ever been convicted of the murder of Brian Wells, uh, which is sad. And I mean, hopefully, I mean, hopefully, I don't even know what you can do at this point. I mean, the only person left to really get the answers from is Marjorie, but she's proclaiming innocence. I, I think I think the secrets of this and in my opinion, the mastermind of this is Bill is probably yeah. Bill. But I think I think Marge is equal, honestly. I to think Bill. she's more than Bill. You think so? Yeah, I do. I don't. I think she's way smarter than Bill. But maybe if Bill was still alive, he would have 
confessed and we know all the answers to the I think the fact the that he was the but, first one to call the police shows that he thought that he did less than her. So I think yeah, I think she's the main point. one. So maybe she was the main one. Maybe she's the main yeah. one. But hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode of the Mile Higher Podcast, the Pizza Bomber Mystery. Definitely go check it out on Netflix. I'll link uh, the Netflix title for you in the description. Yes. But if you enjoyed this episode, guys, please hit the like button if you're on YouTube and subscribe to the podcast <laughs> on iTunes and rate it and review. We'd really appreciate it. But that's, that's it, it for, for this us. week. <laughs> episode 20 is over. Yes. Thank you guys Thanks for listening for, uh, and stay woke. Stay woke, everybody. No point in trying. I'm at one.